G'day, you're listening to the Virtual Staff Room and this is episode 23, Cause I'm Free. Well hello and thank you for joining us here on the Virtual Staff Room. Uh, In this episode I get to speak to a delightful young lady by the name of Pia War. And Pia is, uh, well, Pia's into everything. Pia is um, president of Linux Australia. Her and her husband own War Partners, uh, a Linux and open source consulting firm. They do a lot of work in the education sector in terms of uh, making uh, education work for schools and in in the education area. Um, She's also involved in the Australian arm of the One Laptop Laptop Per Child project uh, and uh, this, the first time I bumped into Pia was at a, um, a computer group conference where she was presenting on Linux and I got to sit in on her session and she's an absolute wealth of knowledge about the way Linux can be used in education. Uh, and the second time I bumped into Pia, she was at another conference where she was talking about the one laptop per child and I get to have a little play with her, her OLPC computer um, and I thought it was a fascinating little machine. So uh, I said to her at the time, I said, we really should get together and have a chat uh, at some point on the podcast and uh, she was keen to do that but with a very hectic schedule it's been kind of difficult to, to connect up but we've finally managed to do it. So I hope you enjoy this podcast where we get to talk about uh, Linux, about open source, about how free software is working in education, because Pia has some really good things to say about it. Um, If you're not the geeky technical kind, you might want to just sort of... uh I don't know, you'll probably find the first 10 minutes or so perhaps a little on the um, technical side, but um, I'd encourage you to stick with it or at least skip through it because some of the later stuff is really, really good and there's some great education-related stuff in here. So thanks for joining us. Uh, Here's Pia. And I'm talking now to Pia War from War Partners. Uh, and Pia's going to talk to us about the use of free software in education. So, g'day, Pia. Hi, Chris. How are you going? I'm really good, and it's great to talk to you. We've been trying to hook up and do this for a while, so it's good that we finally managed to. I think last time I spoke to you, you were on a big road trip around Australia. That was a while back. I was. Uh, I was in the process of uh, launching a, um, uh, a new research initiative looking at the um, open source industry and community in Australia, and uh, that report is now launched and it's freely available on census, censsus.warpartners.com.au. Uh, cool. And um, yeah, we had a really, really interesting results from that. So um, the, the roadshow w- went to every capital city in Australia just talking to the industry and the community to try and make sure that they participated in and that we got excellent results, which we did. So it was, it was a fantastic trip. Oh, good. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, I guess before we start, I'll just get you to introduce yourself and just say, you know, sort of who you are and what you do and where you fit in and what your passions are. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Pia War. Um, I've been um, uh, deeply involved, I guess, in technology for many years. I come from a um, uh, my mother was a, a, a techie, and so I've been using computers since I was very young. And um, when I left school, um, after flirting with um, Chinese medicine for a couple of years, I ended up going into IT as a base-level uh, techie and worked my way right up to doing um, strategy and um, uh, solutions architecture and all kinds of really fun, interesting uh, work in IT. Got deeply. I started using, I guess, free and open source software about nine years ago. I first installed uh, Debian, uh, the Debian operating system, and had a bit of a play. And um, after a few years of, of really loving using the technology, which is a lot of fun, and there's so much mm. you can learn. I learned more in probably the first six months using Linux than I had in the preceding ten years of DOS, Windows, and all the rest. Yeah, I can believe and, that. Um, yeah, it was it was so much fun. And so after using it for a couple of years. Um, I started to get a, a better understanding of the broader community aspects and the broader socioeconomic impact, and um, that was the point, I guess, when I started getting deeply involved in the community. So I became president of Linux Australia, the Australian um, peak uh, community organisation for you know developers and technologists and anyone, I guess, interested in, in getting involved in the community. Um, and since then, I've also been involved as um, president of a group called Software Freedom International, which run a a yearly uh, outreach event to the general public. We had over 100 countries participate last year and reach probably 75,000 people, so that was pretty fun. Mm. Um, I also have um, gotten to the point now where I'm working almost full-time uh, on open source 
research, strategy, um, deployments and such in my business with my husband uh, that we, we set up specifically to really uh, look at pushing forward the open source industry in Australia. Um, I'm also deeply involved in getting open source out into education. So I chat to a lot of um, uh, teachers and IT managers in schools. I speak to a lot of uh, girls and boys in schools to get them excited about IT as a career and open source as a, as a, as a, a way into those careers. And um, I'm also obviously involved in the One Laptop Per Child project, um, which is bringing the One Laptop Per Child, which is those beautiful green little laptops that are being rolled out. <laughs> all around the world, uh, to Australia and the Pacific, so yeah, yeah. a lot of stuff. <laughs> well, you and I first met, we were presenting something at um, a Computer Studies Teachers Association gig, and uh, you were talking about open source software there, and I was just totally struck by how passionate you are about it, and 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 you know, it's, it's true what you say, it's not just about software, it's actually about culture, mm. isn't it? The whole open source thing is not about getting software that you don't have to pay for, it's about a mindset of belief in in something much bigger than that. Well, it is, and that's part of the reason I got involved in, um, I guess, Software Freedom Day. It's, we're at a point now where uh, technology is all pervasive, and it's only becoming more and more pervasive in everything that we do. Uh, work, play, voting, communications, you know, every, every part of the human experience now has a, a, a technological underpinning, which is just becoming more and more so. Now, as we go down the path, those technologies shouldn't really be, you know, just defined and um, limited by um, individual single points of um, uh, failure or, or uh, control, uh, which may be a company, it may be an individual, it could be anything. They really need to become participatory and, um, I guess, democratic in a way. And when you start looking at um, the right to participate in technology as being similar to the right to participate in your government, that's yeah. when you start to get a real understanding about the important the important part that, that technology plays in our lives. Open source, um, the beautiful outcome of open source is this you know, free software that people can tinker with that's highly scalable and adaptable and all the rest of it. But um, one of the other main things that uh, creates that outcome is this wonderful community. You have people from every culture, you know, obviously both genders, um, uh, from relig different religions, different um, socio-geographic um, economic backgrounds, all standing side by side to create great stuff and it's just such a, a wonderful experiment in um, what humans can do uh, when they're focused on something above and beyond um, the things that may possibly divide them. Yeah, yeah. I've just been rereading uh, The Wisdom of Crowds and it really taps into that whole um, you know, the, the wisdom of the group kind of thinking. Mm, mm. Mm. And I think open source really taps into that. Yeah. I like to apply I guess the concepts of open source and the open source what we can learn from the free and open source community methodologies to completely new and different things. So, um, yeah. you know, apply it to the classroom, apply it to um, a business, apply it to how you um, uh, work in government, and you'll start to see additional transparency and collaboration and um, openness that is ultimately beneficial for not only the organization and the people, but our entire society. I like that. Well, we need to come back and talk about that. But we should just back up a second there and just – because there will be people listening to this who are going, okay, what's, what's this free software thing all about? So let's just back up and let's just put some definitions around that. So first of all, the concept of free software. Now, there's, there's two things at play here. One is free as in beer isn't, and you don't pay for it. But the other bigger thing here is free as in speech, right? Mm -hmm. So basically what you've got is um, – I'll give people a couple of definitions. You've got um, – a few things that you might hear. You might hear open source, you might hear free software, you might hear free and open source software, you might hear free libre open source software, floss. Uh, there's a lot of definitions out there. Um, for the average person sitting at home, I think the best way to understand this is that all of these terms um, basically uh, capture a, a mechanism for creating software, and this could be applied to anything, yep. but um, creating software in a transparent fashion. So you end up not only having the source code of that um, being uh, freely available, and the source code is the human readable, um, if you like, recipe of the software that you might use. Mm -hmm. um, and the usefulness of having that available is that a person might try, you know, use a piece of software and find that it doesn't do something quite right, and they can go go back and read the human readable and tweak it a bit and make it you know, different and new and interesting or add new features. And that, that is the way that people collaborate um, through having access to that open source. 
Um, but there's other aspects to it as well. There's a governance issue, uh, you know, making sure that people can participate freely, that they can become elected, you know, that there's an open governance area, uh, open standards. You want to make sure that your software and the data it produces is um, available in a standard which is free and open such that you can read it 50 years down or 100 years or 300 years down the track. Um, I always talk about why should my children not be able to read their love letters just because they wrote it in a digital format? Um, and open standards end up becoming the path to real sustainability. Um, open market, you don't want to have a piece of software that is free to download, like shareware, but not free to be able to use in a commercial yep. context. Yep. And one of the big differences between, I guess, shareware and free and open source software is that shareware, typically you can download, but you can only download with a limited license and you still can't get access to the source code. There's not an open community, development community around it. It's really just something that you're downloading and using with a limited license, whereas uh, free and open source software is a whole community um, around that. Uh, you have access to the source code and you tend to never be limited in terms of how you can use it. Uh, you can use it in business or individually or in a school. Or, and the great thing for a school about all of this is, and I've seen this in schools and universities all around the world, if you incorporate some open source, free and open source software into your school and into your learning and that your students are using, you can give that to the students. They can share it with their friends and their families and their communities Again, completely freely because you can redistribute it for free. And um, so you're not just empowering that student. You're empowering their entire community and you're doing it without giving them a future financial or moral obligation. Yeah. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, just to put a bit of historical context around that, you, you, uh, if, if I understand correctly, when um, Linus Torvalds first wrote Linux, he just did it because Unix was too expensive and he needed something he could use, so he essentially wrote the kernel of his own operating system, put it out on the internet and said, if anyone can improve this, go for it. And, yeah. And, and it just iterated into what's evolved into what's now probably the most powerful operating system on the planet. Um, it's fascinating, actually, because he... Um, I mean, there's a, there's a few, I guess, shining lights of this space. And um, Linus started a, a, a movement, I guess, of a operating system. Um, you also have uh, a guy called Richard Storman who sort uh -huh. of started. The, the, the core thing that I guess he brought to, um, uh, to this entire movement, and you, I guess you could call it a movement, mm -hmm. was um, the, the creation. Concept? Yeah, this, yeah, the creation of this fantastic license called the, uh, the GPL, which basically said you can redistribute for free. You have the freedom to, um, you know, to, to read the code. You have the freedom to change the code. And um, ultimately, um, by giving by being able to add this license to the software it it created a a um a way for it to stay open not for you to just be able to create it but then someone else to be able to take it and make it into something uh closed but for it to actually stay yeah. pervasive and, and open so uh, and there's a bunch of other sort of leading lights in the space now. But, um, and that sort, of, that sort of thinking's actually become really pervasive. If you look now at things like even the Creative Commons uh, yeah. you know, licensing of content now, that's the same kind of thinking, isn't it? You can use it, you can freely change it and do whatever you want with it, but you've got to allow other people to do the same thing. The interesting thing about Creative Commons is that um, – and it, uh, Creative Commons – there are certainly Creative Commons licenses that give you that. And it's fantastic to see this open knowledge movement because yeah. if we don't have open knowledge, you know, we're going to be in a bit of trouble uh, further down the track. But um, it is important to understand, though, with Creative Commons, you have the choice. You can choose to give or revoke particular mm -hmm. rights. Mm -hmm. So you can say, okay, I want to have something that's only free to distribute, but you can't change it and you have to give attribution. Mm -hmm. Or I want to have something that's only free for use in education. Or I want to have something that's only... Um, that you can take and redistribute and remix and do whatever you like. like you have the ability to give the specific rights that you want. It's yep. not just yep. a one license. So, sure. um, yeah. Yep. But, yeah. It's interesting to see this kind of thinking starting to become pervasive in all sorts of areas now. Hmm. I guess that ultimately, um, ultimately a lot of people and a lot of your listeners will probably be able to um, uh, connect with the idea of the commons. So back in, you know, oldie England – you had a, a paddock and uh, the community would uh, work in the paddock, uh, you know, everyone putting in their own bit of effort. Um, everyone would, um, you know, sow the seeds, um, tend the field and um, ultimately get a harvest and everyone would get the benefit of that harvest so they would get a share of that harvest. So this collaborative work to creating a, a um, positive outcome for everyone, although the, you know, the useful thing about software is that once you create it, you can copy it and everyone gets the the full benefit rather than a partial benefit. Um, this collaborative development model 
not only is it much more, um, I guess, intuitive in a way uh, in terms of how people work better because rather than you taking on 100% of the work of creating and maintaining and developing software, you're able to do it in collaboration with brilliant minds from all around the world. Mm. Yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants before you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, what, what's out there then? So in terms of education, so I'm a teacher, I'm, I'm doing stuff with kids in the classroom. Give me the compelling reason why I want to be looking at open source software rather than, you know, wandering down and using my proprietary Microsoft stuff. Cool. Um, I think that there are three ways that um, – I think that, sorry, I think there are three areas that open source software can – uh, bring additional value or a equivalent value into um, schools and into the, the education sector generally. Uh, the first area is in infrastructure. You don't need to necessarily go in and rip out and replace anything in a, in a school to be able to um, take advantage of great open source technologies. You've got content management systems, you've got voice over IP systems, messaging systems, social networking software. Um, you've got pretty much anything you can imagine, teleconferencing, um, You've got all this great infrastructure that you can put in, um, add value to what you already have, not interrupt your existing services, and be able to bring more services and value and you know um, fun stuff for uh, for your students and for your education community. So the infrastructure area is one space where open source is just absolutely brilliant. You can do anti-spam solutions, you can do antivirus solutions, all these kinds of things at a very low cost but in a very scalable way. So if you need to have, you know, 100 or 10,000 students, you can scale up very quickly. And we're seeing things like um, e-learning. A lot of your listeners would have heard of Moodle. Uh-huh. There's a very strong um, Moodle um, community for, uh, right around Australia and the world. Yep. And we're seeing, um, you know, a whole bunch of different infrastructure. So the first one's infrastructure. The second one is in terms of teaching itself. So... Um, one of the things that has been concerning to me as a person working in IT has been the um, uh, uh, the changing of what's being taught um, in terms of technology in the schools from uh, having an IT class to just incorporating office productivity to all of the classes. The problem is that the, the, the kids, I guess, are, are losing out on learning about technology and learning how to be adaptive learners. If you can teach a concept rather than a product, the student is going to be more adaptable, more able to understand what's going on beneath the surface, more able to use a different application when they go out to the workforce. And ultimately, it's going to be more valuable to their employer and you know, have an easier life for themselves. So if in what you're teaching in the classroom, um, you can use both proprietary and open source equivalents, and you're also going to find areas where there are open source applications for which you don't have proprietary. You're going to have situations where you have proprietary for which you don't have open source. But a healthy combination of both is going to um, help you teach those concepts without adding a huge amount of cost. And the great thing is that for the students that go home that can't afford to buy, you know, uh, Photoshop or um, or Visio or any of, of these kinds of applications, you can give them applications like um, Inkscape is a fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah, great tool. Yep, fantastic tool for drawing and creating. Um, the, um, there's a, a thing called the Open Source Catalog. Sorry, yeah, the Open Source Catalog for Education, uh, which I'll, I'll give you a link for, and I'll, I'll give you a bunch of links for um, where you can find open source um, education software. Great. So teaching in the classroom, and the third one is actually teaching IT. If you're trying to teach programming, um, an open source language like Python, which was developed specifically to teach programming or tools like um, Alice 3D, which is an animation and programming tool, which is fantastic. I've been going and teaching it in um, lots of high schools. Um, and the, the girls absolutely – I've mainly been teaching in girls' schools. And the girls absolutely love it because they both get animation as well as this basic idea about programming. Um, but if you're trying to teach a programming language, rather than trying to build your own curriculum and your own examples, you can just go to an open source application, download it, and you've got – you know. Okay, kids, today we're going to create a CMS. Here's an example. Go and tweak. So you have all this fantastic documentation, existing source code, and tools that you can use in both infrastructure, general learning, and um, ICT learning. Yeah. It's really interesting that there – I think most of the – a lot of the pushback you're going to get from people as to not using open source software is purely legacy stuff. And I'll give you an example. My mother has a computer that she doesn't use very much, but she asked me to – she wanted to do some typing on it, so I installed OpenOffice on it. And now, 
she doesn't know the difference. <laughs> she, she doesn't know she's not using what the rest of the world thinks is, you know, the the, the, the flagship product, so to speak, um, because she hasn't got anything to unlearn. And I think a lot of the stuff that we, we have trouble with adapting to some of this new software is simply because we're entrenched in this sort of legacy stuff that, you know, Microsoft has always been the way we've done things. Um, this we- is where I think Vista has um, given us a very sweet gift. <laughs> Vista is um, not only... Um, uh, a little bit more difficult, uses a lot more um, hardware and resources and all this kind of stuff. But for a lot of people, it is actually a big leap. Um, you're going to a different interface, a different, uh, certainly office interface. Yep. And um, for them, actually looking at open office is far more intuitive for what they're used to. Yeah, you're now, absolutely right. There are a lot of people that think that the Vista design is better or worse, or, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into that discussion. But if you're having to jump to a new platform, then you may as well jump to a new platform, which is going to severely cut your costs and make it more um, easy for you to scale and be um, adaptable. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. If if you've and especially if you don't have that um, baggage to unlearn. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> One- I, I reformatted my son's computer the other day because it was running like a dog, and um, he wanted me to put. Microsoft Office back on it, and I said, "Well, I don't have a license for that, so you get Open Office instead." And he complained at first, and eventually he said, "You know what? This is this is better." No, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it has different features. I mean, one of the key things that I find when talking to people about open source, if you're looking at a free and open source application that um, adds something new, then there's never a problem because you know it's a new teleconferencing application or e. Um, learning application or blog or whatever. Um, but when you're replacing something out, the first thing that I try to do is to sort of say to people, look, first of all, it needs to be said, this is different. Um, it will functionally do pretty much everything that you want to do. Yeah. In fact, it will probably do some extra things. But unless you're aware that it is something different, you're going to constantly be looking for it to be the same, at which point you're going to have a dissatisfying experience. Yeah. Um, so let's look at all the ways that it is different. Let's... Um, uh, find the things that you like and the th- things that you dislike, and let's experience that as a new a new thing, which it is. Yeah. And most people get very happy. There was this great story, a great story of a a friend of mine who went into um, an old person's home, and um, he set up a bunch of computers for them there. Now he said to them, you know, he was setting up secondhand computers, so he was charging I think two hundred dollars or something a computer to go and set it up, give them some basic training. And, of course, if they wanted Windows, it was an extra $100 or whatever it was for the license. Mm-hmm. So about half the um, half the people took the Windows and half the people took Linux. Now, the troubleshooting was fascinating because the people with Windows, you know, the troubleshooting he was doing for them was generally fairly basic stuff. Oh, you know, it's, it's frozen or it's how do I do this or um, how do I, you know, write a, a Word document. It was, it was generally fairly high level. The people who chose the Linux one, he'd turn up and they would have, you know, replaced... Um, you know, installed a new kernel <laughs> and just, you know, <laughs> gone and installed whole new applications. And um, he was just fascinated. They seemed to enjoy the experience of using the computer more, which led to more experimentation. And that was just a fascinating thing to watch. Wow. That is interesting. Mm. Mm. So um, you mentioned some before, that like Moodle, so I think something that most educators would have heard of. Um, uh, WordPress, probably another one. WordPress, yeah, WordPress is a fantastic blog. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, Audacity? Just on on WordPress for a second, there's actually a plug-in, a second project that if you run a WordPress blog and you want forums, there's a beautifully integrated forums called BBPress, um, which is um, an integrated WordPress forum. Uh, So if you install WordPress, you can install the WordPress forum, which is called BBPress, and it just integrates beautifully. Uh Hmm. Um, I didn't know that. yeah, so in terms of back-end stuff, infrastructure stuff, um, uh, and then we'll jump into, I guess, the desktop. But in terms of infrastructure stuff, you've got um, uh, voiceover IP software, um, uh, so Asterisk. Asterisk is uh, one of those things that you should probably get your Year 12 students to do as a project to set it up. It's a little bit fiddly to set up, but once it's set up, it's rock solid. If you ever buy a internet, um, sorry, a, a international phone co- card um, to make calls. Most of those services run on um, Asterisk. It's absolutely enormous. Um, you can look at systems like... Um, um, uh, actually, on the one laptop per child server, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's really great for schools. So for doing things like uh, setting up a library or backing up um, the software for the students 
or um, doing – there's some great GIS applications out there now. And, I mean, even using a lot of the um, uh, the Google applications is, is quite handy. Most of that runs on open source. Um, so, yeah, some great stuff from a server perspective. From a desktop perspective, you've got Audacity um, and um, a few other great music applications. Mm-hmm. Um, for the young kids, there's an applica- application called GCompre, which has within it about 40 or 50 math, science, uh, computer familiarization and uh, puzzles kind of applications. Uh, it's perfect for uh, primary school kids. Um, for um, I'm just going to go through. There's so many different applications. <laughs> I use... Um, well, when you, when you install Ubuntu, um, the, 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 num- the amount of stuff that comes with that, uh, the little apps and stuff that run um, as part of the pre-installed package, it's mind-blowing. Oh, it is. It's great. And the thing is that there's probably um, at least 5,000 applications additional when you enable the online repository that you can just go and install stuff. So that, oh, for the systems administrators out there and the IT managers, there is a, a tool called Sabion, C-A-B, uh, sorry, S-A-B-A-Y-O-N. The reason I bring this one up is because it's actually a profile editor. Uh, for anyone out there who's had to do um, profile management and, and, um, um, and group policy stuff, um, on Windows, they will absolutely love this tool. It basically boots up a profile. You edit the profile, give it the background you want, the, um, um, uh, the you know lock it down with all the security settings you want. Keep, just change it however you want. Then you click save, and then you can deploy that profile. And um, it's just, and it because it's showing you what's happening. It's just absolutely beautiful to work with. Um, there's some other really great management tools and stuff. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, so some really good stuff there. So it's pretty hard to take people seriously when, when you hear schools say, that oh, we just don't have the money to do you know, X, Y, Z, because a lot of this stuff will run on less um, cutting-edge hardware. Yeah. And there's no real cost involved in the software, and obviously there's some setup involved. What's, what's your experience with um, – someone once said to me, you know, you'll, yeah, you'll pay less for the – you pay less for the software, of course, because it's free, but there's longer-term implications in, in keeping it running. Um, and, that, and that's always the argument Microsoft used, that you know, total cost of ownership is going to be less because the people who maintain this stuff uh, are easier to come by. What, what's your feeling on that one? I've um, dealt with a lot of um, large corporates, um, government agencies, and I've seen um, case studies and TCO studies from all around the world. And... What I will do, I'll, I'll say two things. First of all, I'll say that there are many, many, many published TCO studies from people who have absolutely no um, reason to care whether open source or proprietary software is better yep. um, that show that the TCO under the open source solution that they've chosen has been significantly lower. Right. Um, having said that, I think it's really important, and I think that both sides, because there is certainly um, you know, uh, misinformation from both sides of the fence, uh, particularly when you start getting all the large corporates involved, um, I think it's really important that people actually do a TCO study for themselves. When it comes to support cost, yep. um, it is absolutely sure that you will be spending probably a little bit more for a Linux system administrator. However, your Linux system administrator, well, I'll start the other way, your Windows system administrator that's been showed can usually manage anywhere from 20 to 30 servers simultaneously, mm-hmm. whereas a Linux system administrator can um, usually manage up to about 200 um, servers simultaneously, and in the case of Google, who have you know many hundreds of thousands of servers in their of computers in their um, big supercluster, um, their systems administrators are getting you know probably thousands to a single um, per systems administrator. Wow! So um, the people that you pay, uh, you probably be paying a bit more money because it you know it's it's fairly skilled stuff, but they'll be able to manage more servers. Now, one of the other things here is that. I think one of the things that schools vastly underutilize is the keenness and interest of students. Mm, good um, point. Yeah. Particularly in high schools, but I mean also in, in primary schools, um, you'll have students who, you know, for an IT um, uh, assignment, get them to create a content management system, get them to set up a voice over IP solution for the school, get them to set up a school radio um, using, you know, uh, an old computer that you've got left over from an old refresh or something. And I think that you'll find that that's where you'll get some serious innovation and some, some seriously cool stuff that often enough the IT managers, who are usually doubling as a, as a physics or an English teacher, um, just don't have the time to, um, to implement and to innovate because they're busy trying to just maintain what they mm-hmm. already have. Yeah, true. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I've only had a few examples where I've worked with kids and using open source stuff. I had one kid who was particularly interested in Linux at one point, so we gave him a computer from the last refresh, as you say, and just said, here you go, play with this, do what you want with it. And that was interesting because we actually had one of the other parents, his father was a Unix administrator, and so he actually gave up some of his time to come in and work with this kid and, and get things set up, and that was a great experience. That's fantastic. What did he end up doing? Um, look, just just to get the system up and running, and this, this is going back a couple of years um, mm. when, when it was a little bit harder than it is today, but just to get the system up and running and installing software and sort of tweaking the kernel here and there, um, it was a good experience, and he really enjoyed it. Cool. I think that's another kind of misconception. People think Linux, and they and they assume that open source is Linux, which it isn't. Linux is just you know a, a nickname for an operating system that's just one open source project. Um, but um, people think Linux, and they think command line, and they think, oh, it must be really really hard. And so many times I've given a presentation and I finish, and I've purposely closed my presentation while still connected so people can see my desktop. People are like, oh, that's a really nice background. Oh, oh, what's that? That's hmm. Linux. Oh my God, it's got icons. <laughs> and I think that really, honestly, people just need to get out and play. Grab yeah. a copy of Ubuntu or Fedora or, you know, one of the many versions of Linux out there. I usually say um, uh, Ubuntu, Fedora, and uh, Mandriva are great to look at because the three of them are really pretty in all kinds of different ways. Uh, my particular um, distro of choices Ubuntu. There's another, there's a version of Ubuntu called EduBuntu, which has a whole bunch of stuff installed specifically for schools. So, yeah. um, you know, install an old computer and just check it out. Uh, now, you, you, when I saw you last, you actually were giving out CDs of, I think it was EduBuntu. Mm, mm. Uh, that's the one with the brown background, right? <laughs> I think they both have a brown background. <laughs> um, or was it Ubuntu or it must have been Ubuntu? But yeah, it it's, a, it's a great – uh, I didn't realize at the time how you can just get that CD and stick it in, boot from the CD and, and play with the operating system without any commitment whatsoever to, mm. to your hard drive. Uh, and then if you decide you like it later on, in one click, bang, it's installed. Yeah, um, the live CD idea is fantastic. And it's also a really good tool for schools. Rather than you know having to ask already uh, overworked IT um, support people to support you know a second operating system or dual boot machines – um, just have a live CD there, boot from your live CD, and use uh, the live CD environment to um, to teach additional applications and to teach the IT classes. And that way, then you just reboot and you're back into Windows or Mac, whatever you were running before, and um, you're still only having to actually actively manage one system at a time. Yep. Um, the other thing I think about that is that um, when you do um, inevitably go to install um, uh, Ubuntu, Ubuntu does this and some of the other distros do as well, um, it'll actually already detect that you have Windows installed. It'll just shrink the size of your disk, install um, Ubuntu on the other partition, and then um, make it dual boot. So when you next boot, it'll give you the option to go into Ubuntu or Windows, and um, you don't have to do any uh, superfluous tweaking. It'll just figure it out. Oh, I didn't know that. Hmm. There you go. So it's worth just restating that again for anyone who heard that just then and went, huh, what, say that again? So you stick the disk in the drive and boot from the CD drive, and it boots into Ubuntu Linux, and then gives you the option of clicking a button and having it install itself onto your drive as a dual boot system. Mm, absolutely. It'll detect that Windows is there, ask you if you want to keep Windows or override it, and uh, for those wanting to keep it, they can keep it. By the way, if you do want to keep running Windows or Windows applications under Linux, um, and, and you just want to have just Linux on the system, what you can do is just install Linux, and then you can install... Um, a virtual machine um, of some sort. I actually usually recommend VMware. It's not open source software, but it runs beautifully. It's free, and um, it runs very, very nicely under under Linux. And um, you can run an entire Windows environment under VMware under Linux, and it will often enough run faster than Windows running natively. Um, but the second option you have is a thing called Wine, uh, which stands for uh, Windows Emulator. Yep. You can run Windows Wind Windows is not an emulator, I believe it stands for. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of bizarre, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you can actually run a Windows application such as maybe MYOB or such as um, you know various games or, or a particular application that you have that only runs on Windows and that you don't want to replace, you could run it under Wine, under under Linux. It's certainly something to think about because I, uh, well, you know, I don't want to turn this into a, a Microsoft versus anything war, um, and it's not. But um, the the 
the costs involved in licensing every year for proprietary software can be really considerable. Uh, and I'm thinking back to my last school, it was 12000 a year. Mm, That's mm, a mm. big chunk of cash. I guess this is one of the things that I talk about. A lot of people, particularly in the, um, particularly in the public school system, sort of say, yeah, but Windows is free and so we'll use it. Well, it's not really free. There was a fantastic study done by a lady called um, Professor Catherine Moyle. Now, her um, works you can easily find through Google or if you go to um, the ASCOS website, which is the Australian Service um, um, for Knowledge uh, of open source software, uh, which is a research project in Macquarie. We've linked to a whole bunch of them from there. But her research showed that, you know, the amount of money was in the tens of millions that are being spent every year. Um, and meanwhile, there are some schools that don't have air conditioning or don't have sports equipment yeah, or don't have, you know, right. some, or don't have their toilets fixed. And you sort of think, well, you could be, particularly with this fantastic um, new, um, I guess, funding going into the, the secondary schools, It'd be great to be able to use that money to actually get non-commodity stuff, yeah. um, and you know, use things like open source software to, um, at the very least, um, make the best use of the money. You might have, let's say, if you've got forty computers in the school, have maybe thirty of them running open source software and ten running uh, Windows or Mac. And uh, that way, they're going to get that different experience. But you're also able to um, put the money that's been saved from those 30 licenses of Windows or 30 licenses of uh, Photoshop or 30 licenses of whatever, and put it into something else. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that um, uh, uh, there's a guy called Clarence Fisher who's a teacher in uh, far north Canada, and he teaches a primary class up there. And he's got a classroom where he has some Windows machines, a couple of Macs, and a whole bunch of the EPCs running Linux. Mm. And I read a blog post from him a while back that really struck me where he was talking about how what he was noticing was that when kids went from operating system to operating system, they actually worked differently. That the way they approached tasks on the Windows machines was totally different to how they approached it on the Mac and totally different to how they approached it on Linux. And it was really interesting. Can an operating system actually start to define the way we approach a problem and the way we, we problem solve and work our way through problems. It's an interesting point. And I think the really cool thing there is that by giving children access to different ways of doing things, you're going to help them be more adaptable in doing things in different ways on different platforms. Yeah, totally. I think that's so important. I mean, you've got adults today, and I work with a lot of them, who are used to working a particular version of an office productivity suite. And they can't move between different versions of the same vendor um, because it is so uncomfortable for them to see any change in their environment. Mm. We should feel very comfortable with change, um, particularly in technology, which moves so fast. And that'll um, that'll make us work better in any working environment, whether it be a um, a general office or an IT job or you know or a vet or whatever. We need to be able to be adaptable and flexible in using technology. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I guess as we start to wind up towards the end here, uh, the um, the other big project you're working on is OLPC, uh, the One Laptop Per Child. And um, I bumped into you at a conference somewhere else and had a little play of your little green beast. And mm-hmm. they seem like a lot of fun. And I know um, since since that time, that was a while back, that was last year sometime, um, the OLPC project has gone for the buy one, give one deal that they were doing in the States. I don't think we ever got that here. Uh, but I do know there's a lot of people in Australia now who have managed to get their hands on an OLPC. So what's happening in that space? So One Laptop Per Child um, has been uh, having some great successes all around the world. And one of the things that we in Australia and the Pacific realise is that really none of the countries in the Pacific have the purchasing power to individually go to um, OLPC to work with them, yep. um, particularly at the point very early on where they wanted you know, minimum orders of 200,000 or something. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing is that Australia was never and will, will, will never be on the top 10 list of um, um, countries that OLPC want to work with because at the end of it, Australia is a rich country. We um, have a lot of resources and a lot of children who are very well off. Um, having said that, the One Laptop a Child software and hardware are absolutely perfect for any child um, in primary school because it is custom designed for children. And um, all the activities, the entire environment is just wonderfully um, 
and I mean, I've, I've recently gone and I'm, I'm in the process of, of um, helping with some trials throughout the Pacific and starting some trials in Australia that can't be talked about right now. But um, it was wonderful to sort of put them down in front of um, children and just see what they do with them. And it's just incredible because it is so intuitive. So what, where we're at at the moment is there's a bunch of trials being kicked off around the Pacific and around Australia. Um, the idea of Australian trials is that, first of all, you know, we're bringing um, – there, there are disadvantaged um, pockets of, of children throughout Australia that we want to be able to benefit with this project. Um, but second of all, typical kids um, will also get a lot of benefits. So in Australia, both sorts of trials can be funded because we are a rich nation and we have either government or private funding for any of these kinds of stuff. And by, by basically providing the laptops into Australia at some sort of – small premium, um, that premium can then go towards um, countries where they simply don't have access to this kind of funding. So we're going to use um, um, the ability to do OLPC projects in Australia and the Pacific to create a sort of equity sharing and the ability to um, connect up children from different countries and different regions and um, different socioeconomic backgrounds, which I think will be beneficial for the countries, for the children, for the schools and for... um, yeah, and, and for the families involved, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is there a way of getting an OLPC in Australia? Uh, there is. Um, OLPC Australia um, has access to some. Um, we will hopefully be, and it, it may be hopefully in the in the sooner, uh, in, the, in the shorter term, but it may be more to the medium term, be opening up to um, ask uh, people to put in uh, proposals um, for how um, uh, how they w- might like to do trials or, or um or use them in an in a interesting way. So there's certainly trials that will be kicking off in Australia. If people want to get hold of them for developer purposes, they can actually write to OLPC directly and they're sending uh, laptops out to developers. Um, and if people want to just get a hold of a couple to have a bit of a play, we actually have a um, – uh, we've got about 10 or 20 that we can sort of loan out for you know a few weeks at a time as well. So people can basically get in contact with uh, me and uh, if they just go through to olpc.org.au, they'll be able to keep up to date with what's happening. There's a mailing list there. And um, as soon as we'll be able to launch the lending scheme and the buying scheme, which both of which will be announced relatively soon, most likely, uh, they'll be notified if they join the mailing list. Oh, good, good. The original vision was to get them for 100 bucks, but I don't think they ever got to that point, did they? They were like 180 or something last time I heard. Yeah, they're still around 180 They reckon they can get them down to 50 bucks by 2010. Wow which is pretty amazing. Um, we'll probably be, um, at certainly at this point, uh, selling them in Australia um, uh, around the 300 mark uh, with the idea that the, the um, excess there is, is going into helping support volunteers going into the Pacific. Right. So that's kind of like uh, along the lines of the buy one, give one. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, the different, one of the big differences, that um, wasn't necessarily... Um, uh, we, we want to do things slightly differently where we sell them in probably bunches of five because one of the greatest bits about this project is the collaboration. You can be, open up two laptops. They will um, start them up. They'll automatically see each other. Uh, you'll then be able to share stuff. So you can both, you know, one of you can open up a write activity and invite the other person to it or just share it with the neighborhood. And then you can have, you know, five or 10 or 20 people all writing into the same document at the same time simultaneously. And they could be you know, several kilometres apart, um, uh, you know, people dispersed around several Several kilometres apart. Is that how big the sugar networking range is? What happens is that the range from one to one um, is on absolute best case scenario two kilometres, although you could probably rely on about a kilometre. But wow. if you're, if the person, if the next person is a kilometre away from you, another person a kilometre away from that person, yeah, another person a kilometre away from They'll mesh together? They'll all mesh together. Yeah. And if any of you are connected to the internet, um, everyone is connected to the internet. Yeah, that's really neat. Just incredible. So you start thinking about you know some of these remote communities and um, and the the opportunity to actually connect them up uh, without expensive uh, infrastructure and suddenly you know that other two percent of Australia that the government aren't <laughs> promising anything to, we can um, start to uh, to work very closely with. Yeah. Now I've heard people on Twitter make comments about some people really love using them and and other people have gone oh I'm not sure that they're you know not sure they're for me but I'm I'm guessing that that comes down to the having too much to unlearn thing that we spoke about before that because the sugar operating system looks. Really really different to anything they're used to, that they may be approaching it with a different mindset. 
Well, the other thing is it's not made for them. I mean, it's a lot well, of true. adults will yeah. be like, well, I can't w- run World of Warcraft on it. Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not made for that. Um, so the original like, thinking was that let's design an operating system from the ground up for a kid who's never seen a computer before. That was kind of the thinking, wasn't it? The idea is that, first of all, they're trying trying to use, where possible, use existing components. So they didn't want to build everything from scratch because then you, can, you know, it's hard to build a community around that. So they've used um, the Fedora Linux kernel and base operating system. Yep. And then Sugar is like a Windows interface, if you, if you can imagine. Yep. Um, people should definitely go and have a look at some of the uh, YouTube videos of Sugar. And some. And you can actually download Sugar and run it on a normal computer. Oh, that's um, right. Oh, yeah. I have to get a link for that. I was going <laughs> to say, is there an emulator or something where people can go and play around with it and just see what it's like? Yeah. Definitely. But sugar, and the whole idea is that it's not only for a child who's probably never seen a computer before, although a child who has seen a computer adapts very quickly. Um, but the idea is that it's also for a child who might have um, literacy issues. Uh-huh. So it's mainly very icon-driven rather than word-driven or menus-driven. Um, they've used some really amazing new um, innovations where rather than you know browsing a file system, you basically have a journal. So everything that you do on the computer, everything that you save is maintained in a journal. And then you just you know, browse back through your journal to find that application that you had open or that discussion that you had or to, ha- to find that okay. file that you saved. And um, uh, you have uh, – so basically applic- any application. So there's a whole bunch of existing open source applications that have been what they call sugarized, which means that you know it, it now runs within the construct of sugar and there's a beautiful little icon for it. And so they've, again, been able to leverage existing projects rather than uh, – which, which is part of the reason they've been able to create it so fast. I mean, every week there are new applications available. And um, the latest stable version, which is 703, uh, is just really wonderful to use, really good. There's a um, webcam on there. Oh, and I was going to ask you that. So the, the operating system and what have you on the OLPCs is still under constant revision? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's constantly being updated. Now, the webcam, this is one of the most exciting parts of it because there's all this great educational software on there, but the web, the webcam that comes by default, you know, you can take videos or audio or photos and you can very quickly share that with any other OLPC or with the, um, the server network. Um, but they're actually integrating sometime over the coming months a full teleconferencing client. So you'll be, sorry, tele, um, televideo. So you'll actually be able to do video conferencing between OLPCs. And if you connect to the same um, communication server, which is very easy to set up, so you could have a communication server and take children from a school in, um, you know, uh, Sydney and connect them up with children in a school in the Solomon Islands, and suddenly you can actually, everyone can be having full video conferencing um, between those two schools by using an external communication server. So it's, it's just really wonderful, the ability to pull children together um, and have these kind of virtual classrooms that they can learn in. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, awesome. this is why I'm so excited about it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, well, you'll have to give us the link for that because I'm sure there are people listening to this who would love to sort of um, find out more and and maybe even, as you say, you know, there's a, there's a couple there they can get their hands on and have a look at, hmm. which would be pretty neat. The other thing is that if there are any uh, teacher events coming up um, where people would like, um, you know, me or anyone else from LPC Australia to come along, give a demo, bring some laptops along and have a bit of a workshop, very, very happy to do that. Um, I know that there are a lot of, um, you know, teacher learning events. I know there are certainly IT manager events, but I'm not sure what other sort of education events are out there. But, um, yeah, very happy to bring them along, um, run little workshops and just sort of give people a bit of a, a bit of a taste of what they can get out of this. That's awesome. That'd be great. Well, I'll, I'll make sure that that goes in the show notes. So I'll get those links off you and we'll, we'll stick them there in the blog and people can check it out. Brilliant. Well, that's, uh, that's been great. Thanks for filling us in on all of that. I, I mean, I think I, I had the good fortune of hearing, uh, is it Mad Dog Hall? Yeah, uh, Mad John, Dog. John Hall. I had, a, had the privilege of hearing him speak at a conference once. And, man, if there was ever someone fired up about open source and Linux, that's, that's the guy. <laughs> mm. It's funny, actually, because Mad Dog, I first heard him several years ago. And um, he, he was one of the people that really got me fired up about getting involved in a community perspective, like beyond just the, um, you know, using tech stuff at home. So I heard him speak in, I think it was 99, and um, was just blown away. It, mm. it, it was fantastic. Well, you and I might have been standing in the same audience. <laughs> <laughs> was, that wasn't at the um, convention centre at Darling Harbour, was it? No, no. no. Oh, that, okay. that, was in, that was only a few years ago. That was at Linux World. I organised that one. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> 
Ah, oh, cool. No, it was very interesting. And, you know, like, it, it really it struck me because what he was saying was this whole thing that at the time um, people's big concern about going with open source is, but who will support it? And he turned that on its head and said, well, do you really want to go with software where there's only a couple of people who are responsible for it? Yeah. You know, yeah. don't you want the whole world to be responsible for your software? And I guess that kind of makes sense. Mm, definitely. Mm. But, yeah, it's great to talk to you. And, and you've certainly mentioned a whole bunch of things that have possibilities for the use of open source in education and, and how we can leverage it to get some real value out of it. Uh, and all that OLP, I can't, can't say that, OLPC stuff is very cool. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And, by the way, if any of your um, listeners uh, ever want to email me, they are completely welcome. I'm very, very easy to find and very Googleable, and I have a blog where I talk about this kind of stuff kind of regularly as well. Um, but I can be contacted on either pia.war at opc.org.au or uh, just grebo at pipka.org, which is my personal one. And um, people should feel very free to just contact me um, about any of this stuff that they find of interest. Um, I certainly love having loads of conversations about exactly this kind of stuff. Perfect. No worries. Well, I guess I'll see you at the next uh, CSTA thing. I think you're presenting there as well. Yes, I am. That's right, and so am I, so we'll have to catch up. Definitely. But, Thank uh, you very much. It's good to talk to you. Thanks, Pia. Thank you. Well, thanks, Pia. Uh, it's always good to talk to Pia. I, I think she's a lot of fun to talk to and extremely knowledgeable with lots of really good insights to things, so I enjoyed the chance to have a chat with her, and I hope you did too. Um, if you've got uh, things you'd like to talk about on the program, uh, we're always looking for people to chat to on the virtual staff room. So if you're doing things that are interesting with your class, we're using technology, whether you, you do, I don't know, using VoiceThread or blogs or wikis or Web2 tools, or maybe you're doing some cool stuff with interactive whiteboards, or just maybe you, you just got some other activity that I haven't even thought of that uh, uses technology in some interesting way in your classroom, we'd love to hear about it. So uh, drop me a line, chris at virtualstaffroom.net. Uh, send me an email, let me know. Uh, you can also Twitter me on Betchaboy, B-E-T-C-H-A-B-O-Y uh, is my Twitter name. So you can add me to Twitter if you like and um, try and get me that way. Uh, or my Skype name is also Betchaboy. So if you want to add me and, and uh, drop in sometime and have a chat, love to do that. Um, the format for the show, as you can see, we basically just have a chat about whatever it is that uh, you're doing with technology in your classroom. I hit the record button, we have a conversation, and we publish it as a podcast. It's pretty straightforward. Um, not a lot of polished production going on here, but uh, it, it's um, it's a good thing to hear what people are doing in their classes because I think sometimes it's really easy in education to operate in a vacuum and to to not know what other people are doing. So this is a great way to share some of those ideas and some of those things that, that are working for you. Share them with the world. Um, so anyway, as usual, uh, we'll get this podcast up and uh, you'll find all the links to the things we spoke about in the show notes over at www.virtualstaffroom.net. So pop over there and have a look. And you can browse through and go through previous episodes and everything else on, on the site over there. My name's Chris Betcher. You've been listening to The Virtual Staff Room. Okay, well, I guess I'd better start recording now, just in case you say something brilliant. <laughs> uh, I'll try not to. <laughs>